As we've talked about for the last uh, two or three months, as we've gone through Galatians, this is literally a letter that someone read. In fact, the, the, the kind of the methodology that would have been that Paul would have, have paced back and forth and he would have read, spoken this out loud. Someone would have been sitting there. And, and in fact, the, the word that's used for that person is the word where we get the English word dictate. He would have been writing down what Paul said. And then that letter would have been carried by somebody to the church in Galatia. And then in that church, somebody would have stood up and in one setting read this letter. And so it's easy for us to kind of, as we have taken low these many weeks, some of you are thinking, oh my gosh, are we, how long are we going to be in Galatians? But as we have worked our way through, sometimes it's easy to forget that this is a letter that's written to this group of people. And so let's back up and kind of get the thousand mile uh, view of what's going on here and remember that Paul this whole letter is about the gospel he's not he's saying that I presented the gospel to you I came to you in much pain and much sorrow you heard the gospel and then you ran from it you've gone to do something else and for us to and you know it's, it's easy for us to see why they would I will say in today's Christian world that we are utterly surrounded by things that masquerade as the gospel, that we say is the gospel, that isn't the gospel. It's churchianity, or, or it's what we've always kind of believed, or it's the way we've always done things. And so it's important in the beginning to understand what exactly the gospel is. And Paul defines that. He said in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know... That a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, to put that in our vernacular, this is what Paul is saying. We, and I'm not talking about at our worst, when we're the person that we're embarrassed to be, we at our very best, when we're being the best we can be, aren't good enough to be justified by God. See, it's easy for us if we're thinking about what we've done, the good things that we've done for us to forget that the Bible says that our righteousness, our very, very best is like filthy, disgusting rags to God. It's easy for us to forget that. But what Paul is telling the Galatians is, is you can't do the law because it won't justify you. You can't do it good enough. You'll never be able to. And so mankind and this man and that man and woman, there's nothing we can do. We're without hope on our own. And so God had to make a way. God sent His only Son who became sin for us so that our punishment that we deserve, the wrath that we deserve, was poured out on Him on the cross. That's what grace is. Grace is saying, you can't earn it. You can't do it. It recognizes that we make mistakes. Grace understands that we're not going to be Holy on our own. And yet grace does something about it. Paul, as he describes the law as our schoolmaster, all it can do is point out where we're wrong. 
As we read the law, it's, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's a perfect reflection of God's character. When the Bible says, thou shalt not uh, murder, that is exactly the way God wants it. He gives us a commentary on that and says that mankind was made in God's image. In God's made, image did God make man. And so that when we take human life, it's actually an affront to God. And so we understand that the law that was given is good, but we also understand that we can't do it. I heard as I was preparing for this sermon, I listened to a sermon on this text by uh, Matt Chandler, and he described something that went on in his house that really sounded like it had gone on in my house, because all my kids did the same thing, that when they were little bitty, they would come up and go, hold me. Right? You're walking along, and it would always be, you know, when you've you, you got something in your hands and you're trying to, trying to juggle things, and then the kid would come up, and they're right up against your leg, and, they, they, and all of my kids just about would say, hold you, which, me being silly, would always lean on to them. Like, I'm, like you're going to, here, well, yeah, okay, hold, hold, here, hold, get me. And just being silly, they could handle my weight, Right? Or even out here in the gathering area, there, there's um, one of the guys that comes to church here, his little boy every Wednesday night sits out there in the gathering area. And whenever I get up out of the chair, he'll run and go sit in whatever chair I was sitting in and get this big grin on his face like he doesn't know what's going on. And so I'll act like I don't see him and then I go sit on him. And he'll go hee 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 and he'll push on me and it's big fun. But it wouldn't be fun if I actually were to plop my 200 pounds on top of him, right? That, that's not funny because he can't bear the weight of me. When Ruthie would come up and say, hold you, and I would play like I'm getting on her arms, I never actually put my weight on her because she couldn't handle my weight. It would crush her. And that's exactly what the law is designed to do. That as we look to the law, we say, thou shalt not covet so I'm not supposed to be looking at what other people have and say, man, I sure do wish I had that boat. The other night we did the fishers of men and I, I, I was telling somebody today that as I pulled up into the church driveway, I looked around and I said, there ain't nobody here. And then I pulled around back and realized, oh yeah, they had all their boats and they were all lined up here. And I, I, I drove past all those boats saying, man, if Jesus really loved me, <laughs> if Jesus really loved me, that bass master would be in my garage. So I can't bear the weight of the law. It crushes me. You take the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're really honest with our own hearts, we read that and we cry out, I can't do that. There is no way that I can love you the way I love myself. And I know how wicked my heart is. And I still think I'm a pretty good guy. And so the law wasn't designed for us to try to work it. It was designed to show us that we desperately need a Savior. That is the gospel. And so when the Galatians started trying to work the law, Paul is saying, you're missing the point. And so he takes the first part of Galatians and he uses himself as an example to give himself the authority to make that theological argument and to talk about how God's grace has worked out in his own life. 
He's taken the section that we went in through there and used examples from the Old Testament. He used examples of Abram. He's used examples from Moses. He's talked about how with, Moses, with Abram came first and God made a covenant. And then here came Moses and Moses made a covenant. And just like you know, if you make a deal with somebody, you can't turn 400 years later and change it. Well, God knows better than you. And so under the law, a person was saved the same way that they're saved today. They cried out for a Savior. And then he uses the example of Abram and Sarah that, that poor Chad had, to, had, had to, to preach last week. I got tickled. I told him this week, it's really unfair that he had that text that was so difficult to deal with. And the first verse in the text that I'm preaching today is, <laughs> For freedom, Christ has set us free. Woo! Sorry, dude. I mean, I could print that. We print that on a T-shirt, man. Put that on the side of the bus. For freedom, Christ has made us free. The reason why we come to this time of invitation, I mean, we're ready to go. There's nothing else to say. So Paul has made all these examples. He used himself as an example. He used the Old Testament as an example. And today he turns a little bit and he uses what the Holy Spirit and God has done in their own heart as an example. So I want us to take a little bit of time and unpack that statement. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, unless somebody's changed the definition of words, and I'm not going to get crazy with you because the Greek word that's here translated as freedom is best translated as freedom. So I can't get fast and loose with what the original says. It means freedom. Now, when we hear freedom, that means we can do whatever we want to do, right? I mean, let's just be honest here. I, I was thinking, trying to think of an example of that in my my kids gave me one. Okay, in my house, because there are seven of us, we all hide food. I don't know about your house, but we hide food. And my kids have been my kids ever since they were born, and so they know we hide food. So, for example, Molly, I caught digging around in the cabinets the other day because she knew that I had some nutty bars, which are the chocolate, peanut butter, wafer, Peanut butter wafer, peanut butter wafer. Not the Nutty Buddy peanut butter sandwich cookies. Those are different. Those are the ones that are shaped like a peanut that, that have the peanut butter in there. We're talking about two totally different things. The Nutty Buddy peanut butter sandwich cookies has a place in my heart, but not nearly as, as, as high as the Nutty Buddies. Nutty Buddies are clearly manna from heaven. And when we, when, when we are feasting on the marriage supper of the Lamb, I guarantee there's going to be some little Debbie cakes over on the side that you can slide over and get you some. I am looking forward to that day. Lord, come quickly. So we got in our house, I have, you know, the 12-pack of Nutty Bars hid in a cabinet somewhere. And my kids know that they're in there. They just don't know where. In fact, it's so bad in our house that if you go to, like where the dishwasher's here, and you open this cabinet here, if you look real careful way up high, you can just catch the corner of a Reese packet, of a 12-pack, and it's empty. That's a ruse. That's, a, that's, that, that's an attempt to pull them in that direction away from my Nutty Bars. And I, every child that I have at one point or the other has climbed up in that cabinet and said, yes, I found them, and pulled them out and be like, oh, daddy. And, and they all know what's going on well enough to where they put them back. And so just right there is that corner. So if I were to go home and my kids said, what do we have for supper tonight? And I were to say, eat whatever you want to eat. Have whatever you want. Do you think they're going to go to the crisper 
and pull out the kale and make themselves a nice grilled chicken salad? Or are they going to go to the hidden nutty bar section and start passing out nutter bars? So we know when we hear freedom, that means I'm going to do what I want to do. Right? And so when we read, for freedom Christ has set you free, there's two different directions that our heart wants to go with that. And I want to protect us from that. And I want to point out something that maybe you've never thought of before. Because as I have meditated on this for the last two weeks, thank you, Chad, God has really convicted me that there's an aspect to this that I've kind of missed. And I want you to think about, just statistically, what it took for you to become you. Just on a genetic level, I mean, everybody's got crazy stories. I met Anne, this is no kidding, on a plane. I met her on a plane. I was stationed at Camp Lejeune. I was flying to Atlanta. She was going to school at Texas A&M. She was flying from Richmond to College Station, Texas. I just told everybody that you went to Texas A&M. I am so sorry. I know they're in the SEC now. We've tried to keep that on the down low. Wow, I just let that cow the back. So anyway, so we, we both, at that time, U.S. Air, all flights flew out of Charlotte, North Carolina. So I had flown to Charlotte. She was flying out of Charlotte. And uh, she, I, I, we, we've talked about it since then, clearly, because I'm around her a good bit. But I, walked down, I was walking down the concourse with a group of guys. And past her, she was going the other dire- direction. And I think I said something like, hey, little schoolgirl, I'm a little schoolboy, too. <laughs> Where are you going, Harrison? Just don't worry about me. I'll talk to you all later. But lo and behold, I get on that plane, and it was a plane I wasn't supposed to be on. I missed my original flight. We were getting a 96 that day, and, and just as we were leaving, the, the, our platoon leader walks out and says, I need three volunteers to give blood. You, 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 go give blood. And so I had to go give blood, and so I'd missed my original flight. So I'm on a plane I'm not supposed to be on. When I boarded, the stewardess came up to me and said, Sir, excuse me, would you be willing to move seats? We have a child that's flying alone, and we would like... I was in uniform, so she mistakenly thought I was responsible. I was wondering if you would sit with this child. And so I said, yeah, sure, whatever. And so I was in a seat I wasn't supposed to be in. And here in about 10 minutes, I'm looking up the aisle, and this beautiful redhead comes walking down the aisle. And then she got to my seat, and excuse me, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me. And then she sat down at the window where the little boy I was supposed to be watching, who didn't get watched any that day, uh, <laughs> sat here. I sat in the middle seat, and Ann was sat on the window seat. And so from Charlotte to Atlanta, I gave a full court press. I was trying to be funny and witty and every other thing. When we got off that plane, I, I tore off an address from a bill or something I had, and I handed it to her, and I said, hey, if you ever want to ride a lonely Marine, here, give me, give me a letter. This is for cell phones and everything, guys. You didn't have numbers. There were no digits to give. I mean, if you gave somebody digits, they were going to have to go home and do this. <laughs> so that didn't happen. So... And about three or four months later, I get a letter from her because the Marine Corps, of course, lost the letter. Um, I get a letter from her, and we start writing with each other, fell in love and got married. Still in love. Love you, babe. Um, So those five kids of mine, it is a miracle that they're born. 
It's a miracle that God brought us together. And if you think about in your life, how many of you have a grandparent that came from Texas or Oklahoma or New Jersey or Ohio or someplace to Alabama? And then and even in your school, I mean, how many people did you go to school with that were just disgusting and they ate glue and they picked their nose and stuff? So even if you, your grandparents met and went in elementary school, the fact that God would bring them together is a miracle. The fact that you're sitting here, statistically speaking, is an impossibility. Because if you, and we've only talked about two generations back. Generation after generation after generation after generation had to meet this person and this person had to fall in love and they get married and have this kid and then that kid had to meet that kid over there and then all that come together for you to be who you are. And think about this. God in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty could have made you any way. He chose to make you exactly the way you are. Your personality, the color of your soul, the way that you think about things, the way that you, you, you filter things through. Some of you in here are stubborn. You're bullheaded. You're hard-headed. Some of you in here are pliable. You just want to make everybody happy. Some of you in here are a mix of that. And all of that, God could have made us all personality-wise exactly the same. Couldn't he have? So you are who you are because God made you that way. But, unfortunately, the enemy is at work in our world. And so, I, I want to use myself as an example. God gave me a certain amount of stubbornness because it takes a certain personality to stand in front of 400 people and say, Whatever y'all been thinking is wrong, what the Bible says is right. So y'all need to listen to me. I mean, do you have to admit that's a strange thing? And what other situation do you have somebody that does something like what a preacher does? And so God made some me to where I'm the type of person that's not intimidated by that. That doesn't bother me. But at the same time, if I let sin take hold in my heart, the same personality that God can use to build his kingdom, the enemy can use to tear God's kingdom down. Because I can be a bold-headed, smart aleck that hurts people with my words. I can think on my feet so that I can use that personality to hurt people. That stubbornness can be, I ain't listening to anything that you got to say. I'm right. And that's wicked and evil. If you're the type of person that God made so that when you see somebody, you naturally empathize with them. You want to help that hurt. You want to love on them. The enemy can twist that and turn that into somebody who'll do whatever the crowd is telling them to do because you can't handle not making everybody happy. Do you see what I'm saying? That God made you a certain way. Every human being that's ever lived, every aspect of you, God lovingly pieced together and knitted together in the womb so that you could be exactly the person God wanted you to be. And the moment you took your first breath, the enemy started trying to use that very same stuff to destroy you. So that... When Paul is saying that for freedom, God has set you free, that when we can strip away our flesh and we can strip away the way the enemy has assaulted, all of a sudden you become free to be used by God. 
Everybody has an innate desire deep within you to be a part of something bigger than you. And God has laid that out in front of you. Come, join with my kingdom. Help me build it. Not only has God told you that he wants you to come help him build his kingdom, he's saying that I've made you so that without you, this thing that we're doing is missing something. I need you. I need the characters that God has put in your life. I need some people who are naturally loving to pull me away from being a jerk. I need people who are naturally uh, the kind of empathetic person to pull me in this direction. We need each other. And church and God's kingdom only works when we as a body work to do things. And the enemy wants to twist that and warp it. And God wants to set us free from that. C.S. Lewis said it this way, and I love this quote. The more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Because he made us. He invented us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality that I begin to have a real personality of my own. As, God, as you are transformed into the image of Jesus, you become more you than you've ever been. So that the gifts God has given you, so that the way that God has made you can be free to run amok against the enemy's kingdom. If we allow God to control us, we can assault the gates of hell. God wants to set you free. And he's done that so that in Christ we can be free. Now, the flip side of that is, I think it's Sarah Groves that sings a song that says, God has no sooner freed me from my shackles that I miss their familiar weight. The enemy wants you to be a slave. And he doesn't care if you're a slave to heroin or you're a slave to rules. Whatever it takes to keep you humming as you go to hell. That's why Paul says in this text... There is no circumcision. Circumcision is of nothing. How can you say that, Paul? The Bible spends almost fully a quarter of its book talking about how important circumcision is. It's a symbol of the the relationship and the covenant between God and man. It's something that God required of Moses before he could go lead the children of Israel to the point that Moses' wife was pretty upset about it If you want to read the story, circumcision is a big deal. How can you say that, Paul, that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing? What Paul is saying is that the outward symbols of what we do don't mean anything. It doesn't matter if you've got a Jesus fish on the back of your car if you act like the devil in the car. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church. What matters is, are you in a state of worship? And so these outward symbols of what we've got going on 
don't mean anything. Furthermore, they can be destructive. Now let me, Paul says it this way, and I've really, uh, and Anne has, has, is, is right now getting really nervous. Paul says, in the text that we read, he said, to those men who are calling on you to be circumcised, I wish that they would emasculate themselves, is what the, the ESV says. The, in the original language, what they, he said, I wish they would make themselves a eunuch. And I've really struggled with how exactly to talk about that in mixed company. But here's what I've always took that to mean. And I think one of the sides of what Paul is saying is this. Those guys that are telling you to circumcise yourself, I wish they'd finish the job. And that is probably one of the harshest sentences in the Bible. Now, I've always thought that that's all he was saying. And this week I actually came to a realization of something. Whenever we read and study the Bible, one of the things we try to do is put it in the context of of what it's saying in the Bible and then put it in the context so as we're reading it, we understand what the original people, the people in Galatia, when they heard it, what they would have been thinking. And in that part of Turkey, in the first century A.D., the prominent religion of that day was the worship of a Greek god named Sybil. Some of you may have, have uh, read about that, or, or, or some of you uh, guys who are in high school and still remember Greek mythology will remember that. But civ- the worship of civil included having priests. And those priests who led the worship of civil, Sybil, the, one of the things that they did to set themselves apart as a priest of Sybil was, was that they would be made into eunuchs. And so as Paul is saying to those who are telling you that you should be circumcised, I wish they would make themselves a eunuch, what that audience in Galatia would have thought of immediately would have been just like the priests of Sybil. And so one of the things, I think Paul is making an implication that circumcision is of nothing and that those people should essentially finish the job. But one of the other things that he's saying very clearly here is between the priest of civil and the priest of Judaizers, there is no difference. They're both leading you to hell. It doesn't matter what you have on the outside of the bus as you go to hell. What matters is is what's on the inside. And the only thing that matters is what we've talked about with that gospel. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. That is it. It isn't anything we do. It isn't any incantations of prayers that we say. It isn't signing a card. It isn't singing in the choir. It isn't even standing in a pulpit. The only way I will ever make it to heaven is that I fall on my knees and cry out for God to be merciful on my soul. That is it. That is the only way. And the list of rules and the list of do's and don'ts that we've come up with are silly on their face. Jesus says the exact same thing when he tells the parable of the prodigal son. And we so often miss it. Because in the parable, the point that Jesus is trying to make 
is that the prodigal son who went out and got drunk and wasted all of his money on prostitutes and the good son who stayed home and worked were both going to the same hell. And that those outward appearances didn't have a wit to do with their eternal justification. And let's just be real here for a minute. Last Wednesday, Ken Welch came to visit me. He is a missionary to Western Africa. God has used him for everywhere from Lewis Street Baptist Church to Nigeria and, and, and all over Africa. And we, we had a glorious two hours just sharing with each other just how God had, has moved and I told stories from, from Nepal, and he told stories from um, Somalia. And I would tell stories from Turkey, and he would tell, tell stories from Ghana. And we just had a great, glorious day talking not about what we had done, but how faithful God is no matter what the circumstances are. And he is faithful. And we came in here, and we were actually in this room, and we were actually sitting on this stage. And he asked me... He said, what's the hardest field you've ever been to? As you've gone around the world, what's the hardest place you've ever been to share the gospel? And without hesitation, I said, Glencoe, Alabama. Because you know what? There are people in this room right now that you're not a Christian. You've gone to church your whole life. And you are playing a game with God because you think you're earning it by being a good person. Maybe you walked down an aisle, you repeated a prayer after some preacher, and that's what you're looking at to save you. Maybe you're a deacon in this church. Maybe you're on staff at this church. And I need to look at my own heart because the Bible tells me to examine myself daily to make sure that I'm in Christ. Maybe, you're, I'm, maybe it's me. But there are people in this room who have never really been saved. And they can look you in the face and they can give you all the right answers. They know because they've heard from the time that they ate those little cookies that you put on your finger in VBS, those little, little Niller cookies, and drank watered-down Kool-Aid in VBS. They've heard the story over and over and over. And they've got a crunchy gospel shell But if they were to die right now and they stood before Jesus, the reason why they think they got into heaven is because I've done this or I've done that or I've done this or I've done that. And they're looking to a law. It's not the law of the Old Testament. It's a law they've made up. Or it's a law, God forgive us, that we've made up. And I want to, in this room today, say... Don't go to hell. Don't put your faith in anything except Jesus. Don't put your trust in anything except the fact that God made a way. You can't make a way. Tom can't make a way. But Jesus can make a way. And so, as we come to this super familiar time of invitation, 
I'm not asking you to come down here and be emotional. And I'm asking you to in your heart there or down here at this altar or leave and go get in your car. Nail it down. Look to what Jesus did on the cross is what saves you. Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus but plus being a good guy ain't going to save you. Jesus plus saying a prayer at an altar ain't going to save you. Jesus plus signing a card ain't going to save you. Jesus is alone. Oh God, we need just you. Look to Jesus. And if you're in this room and you are a Christian, a lot of what Paul talks about and we're going to delve deeper into next week is... We don't done with the gospel once we, we get saved. We're, we don't walk away from the gospel and go, okay, that was for lost people and now I got this. That doesn't work. If you're in this room and you're a Christian and you truly called on the name of the Lord to get saved, but now you got this worked out, no, a thousand times no. We can't do this without Jesus. Come down here to this altar and pray, God, set me afire. Help me return and do the things I did before. And if you're looking for a church family, you can't do this Christian walk on your own. Nowhere in that Bible is there any concept or construct of a Lone Ranger Christian. Join with his family. Father God, Lord, I pray, break our hearts over the things that break your heart. God, help us to be your people and you to be our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.